In this episode, we're talking about a radical call to radical discipleship. Row that intro. What's up? I'm your bro, Dr. Mario Escobedo, pastor and online Bible teacher. It wasn't all that long ago that I lacked the confidence, knowledge, and tools to feed my desire to dig deeper into God's Word. Fast forward past many lessons learned, mentors, and personal encounters with God, and you'll see the incredible privilege God has given me to teach the Bible to others. I'm convinced now more than ever that it's been God's Word that has led me to discover and fulfill the purpose God designed for me. I created the Christian Bro Code Podcast to help you on your journey to do the same. If you're a Christian bro who wants to grow as a disciple of Jesus so you can live, love, and lead in a way that honors God, you're in the right place. Let's get started, bro. Hey, what's up? I'm your bro, Dr. Mario Escobedo. Welcome to the Christian Bro Code podcast and YouTube channel. Every time I do an episode, this is what I start off by telling you the purpose, the purpose of the Christian Bro Code, whether it's a YouTube channel or the podcast, the purpose is to help you grow as a disciple of Jesus, so that you can live, love, and lead to honor God, so that you can continue advancing the mission that Jesus started. This is all about helping you grow as a disciple, so that whatever your role is in the kingdom is in the kingdom of God, you can continue advancing the mission that Jesus started. Thank you so much for joining me in this episode. This is season three, episode number six of the Christian Bro Code podcast. Hey, if you haven't done so yet, Make sure you subscribe to the podcast, wherever you're listening to the podcast right now, Apple, Stitcher, Spotify, wherever. Uh, make sure you subscribe, like, share. Man, it really helps other bros when when you recommend content to them. If you're a friend and they trust you, then they they, they listen to the stuff that you recommend. And so share this content if you, if you think it's worth sharing. If not, then hey, no worries, right? We'll, we'll, we can still be bros and no, no worries. But if you think this content is worth sharing, if it's something that you think one of your Christian bros would benefit from, that it would help them in their spiritual growth, then definitely recommend this to them. Share it with them. Subscribe on the YouTube channel if you haven't done so yet, and share this stuff over there as well. Before we 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 get into the teaching, I want to remind you of a resource, a training that I prepared just for you, just for my bros. The training is called How to Kickstart Your Bible Study Library. Now, look, why this training in particular? I think that if you're going to grow as a disciple of Jesus, one of the very basic things you need to be able to do is do your own Bible study. I mean, you, you have you have to be a self-feeder. You know what I mean? It, when you were a kid, someone had to feed you, but it came to a point where you had to feed yourself. And I think as a, a disciple who's growing, if you want to grow, you need to be able to feed yourself. Now, there will always be a need and a role for pastors, for Bible study teachers, uh, your life group leader, small group leader, but you cannot be entirely dependent on them for your spiritual growth and for your Bible study. So I've created this training, how to kickstart your Bible study library. And I tell you about three tools, three Bible study tools that you can get a hold of that will help you almost instantly. They'll help you take your Bible study, your own personal Bible study to the next level so that you can be a self-feeder and so that you can continue to grow as a disciple of Jesus. So, hey, if you're interested in that, make sure you head on over to thechristianbrocode.com, and you can pick up your free resource there. I've got a raspy throat right now. I'm going to have to be pausing from time to time in the episode. And you know what? I, I don't do a whole lot of editing. It's 
I, I record it and I, I want it to be, I just wanted to come out the way it came out when, it, when I recorded it. So uh, you may hear some pauses from time to time and, and that's just me, I don't know, hacking up a lung or something. I don't know what's going on with my voice, with my throat. I, allergies? I don't, corona? Is that you, Corona? No. Okay, no, it's not Corona. Hey, what a crazy year, 2020. Yeah? Crazy year. Pardon me while I, I just cough a little bit. Sorry about this. All right, I'm back. I just hacked up a lung. Half of my lung is on the floor right now. Don't worry about it. I'm good. Christian, bro, we're going to keep going, right? 2020. What a year. Man, what a... Let's just say it's been interesting. Let's just say it's been it's been interesting. Yeah. Coronavirus, the world is on lockdown, our country's on lockdown. Uh stuff happening socially in the political realm is crazy, crazy stuff. I'm I'm not one to speak politics. I I don't. I keep my politics close to my chest. Uh just crazy. Crazy. We've got a presidential election coming up in November. This episode is going out in July of 2020, so so you know if you lived through July 2020, you know how crazy it is out there right now, and um, things are starting to heat up with the presidential election coming up in November of 2020. And look, no matter which way you lean politically, uh, I think something we can all agree on is that we should be praying for our nation as disciples of Jesus. We should be praying for our nation. We should be praying for the current president and whoever the president is going to end up being after this election. Uh, our politics can differ, but, uh, you know, biblically, we should all be on the same page. We should be praying God's will. We should be praying God's will. Your will be done in earth as it is in heaven. Let that be our prayer for this election. And also, uh, do your civic duty and vote. Definitely. Make your voice heard. Uh, do your civic duty and vote. But yeah, it's it's been an interesting year. Let's just let's just say that. It's been an interesting year. And I hope I hope you and your family are doing well. I hope this lockdown doesn't have you going too stir crazy. A couple of days ago with uh, my daughter who's in high school, of course she's on summer break right now, but she is bored. Uh, yesterday or day before yesterday was re- really the first day that she uh, she had it. I mean, she had just had it. She was just bored. You know, she's FaceTiming with her friends and all that, but it's just not the same. And and she's just, Dad, I'm bored, I'm bored. Of course, typical dad response, right? Like, oh, I've got I've got a bunch of stuff you can do, right? And no, no, no I'm not that bored. So you know how that goes. But anyway, interesting year, very interesting year, uh, 2020. But regardless of everything that's going on, that does not stop us. It should not stop us from growing as disciples. Man, if anything else, we've got more time. You're locked up at home, can't go out for the most part. Uh, you're at home. What a fantastic time to just double down and say, I'm going to grow as a disciple of Jesus. And this podcast and YouTube channel, it's all about helping you do that. So let's jump into today's teaching. Uh, Like I said in the intro, this is going to be a teaching about a radical call to radical discipleship, a radical call to radical discipleship. And I'm going to be basing this episode on Mark chapter 3, verses 20 through 35. I'm not going to look at every verse in that episode, but I'm going to look at some pretty important verses in that episode to talk about this radical call to radical discipleship. Of course, if we're in the book of Mark, we're talking about Jesus. And so it's Jesus who issues this radical call to radical discipleship. So we're going to take a look at that. And we're going to start in verse 20, starting in verse 20. And I'm going to, I'm going to read verse 20 and 21, and then I'm, I'm, going to, I'm going to ask a question and then give an explanation to the question I ask. Okay, so we're going to read Mark chapter 3. Verses 20 and 21, this is how they read. Then Jesus entered a house, 
and again a crowd gathered, so that he and his disciples were not even able to eat. When his family heard about this, they went to take charge of him, for they said, he's out of his mind. Now, everyone, every family has that uncle or that cousin or whatever that you would say, he's out of his mind. And if you can't think of who that person is, then uh, then guess what? It's you. If you're just racking your brain trying to think, oh, my family, who's who's the person that we say is out of his mind? Well, I've never really heard anybody say that. Guess what? They're saying it about you. <laughs> but hey, don't worry. You're in good company. Look at that. Jesus's family said he's out of his mind. So you're not in bad company. Now, the question I have is, what what is it? What is it that that Jesus's family saw or heard, or what is it that prompted this kind of response to them for them to say about Jesus, he's out of his mind. What, what is it? I mean, what, what took place? What did they hear? What did they see that prompted them to say about Jesus, he's out of his mind? Now, if we're reading these two verses by themselves, then you would think that what prompted them to say that is that whatever we read in verse 20, he and his disciples were not even able to eat because this huge crowd had gathered around. And, and actually some, some commentaries, um, some scholars have suggested that, yeah, that, that's the reason that uh, Jesus' family said he's out of his mind. I, I think it's more than that. I think it's a little bit more than that. Uh, I, I don't doubt that Jesus' family was concerned about his dietary needs and his nutrition, but I think it's more than that. And so when I ask the question, what is it that they saw? What is it that they heard? What prompted Jesus' family to say about Jesus, he's out of his mind? I think the the answer to that question is partly in verse 20, but we'd have to go back a few verses, I think, in order to get the full answer. At least this is how I'm going to answer it. And and in parentheses, let me say this, that just a, a simple Bible study principle, as you're studying any passage of Scripture, you need to keep this in mind. Context. When you're studying a passage of Scripture, context is everything. In this case, I'm talking about the literary context. We can also talk about the historical context, what's taking place historically speaking, culturally speaking, what's taking place in society at the time that this portion of Scripture was written. That's the historical context. We can also call that, I guess, the sociocultural context. But here I'm speaking specifically about the literary context. And when I talk about the literary context, what I mean is what came before and what comes after. So we're reading... Mark 3, 20 through 35, the literary context would be the passage immediately before verse 20, and then whatever comes after. In this case, what comes after is the parable of the sower, which is interesting too, based on this passage or in light of this passage. But the literary context, what comes before this this passage that we're reading, Mark 3, 20 through 35, I want to take you a couple verses back so that we can get a little bit of a literary context. And I think, I think... Excuse me. Personally, when I read this passage and and I read that about his family saying he's out of his mind, the verses that come prior to this help us answer why they said that. Now I'm going to go back to verse 13, 14 and 15 and I'm going to read that. Here's here's what it says. Jesus went up on a mountainside and called to him those he wanted and they came to him. He appointed 12 that they might be with him and that he might send them out to preach and to have authority to drive out demons. Okay, so the literary context, 
what comes before, tells us that Jesus chose his disciples, chose his 12 disciples. He appointed them, and he gave them this authority, and he sent them out to do these things that, that these verses say. But here's the key that I'm, that I'm going to hammer out. He chose disciples. Now, then when we go back to verse 20, then that's when we read, then Jesus entered a house, and again a crowd gathered, so that he and his disciples were not even able to eat. And then his parents or his family heard about this, and they said he's out of his mind. Okay, here's, here's, here's what I'm going to propose. What is it that prompted Jesus' family to say he's out of his mind? Two things, I think. Number one, he called disciples. I think, and, and look, I get it. This, in part, this is a little bit of speculation. This is a little bit of, um, what would we say, psychoanalysis of Jesus' family members. I mean, we don't know exactly what they were thinking. So I, 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 I can concede that I'm speculating a little bit, but I think I, think I can make a case for what I'm, what I'm about to present to you. Now, look, he called disciples. Now, I think what prompted his family to say he's out of his mind is that maybe they already knew about, about Jesus' claims about himself. Certainly they, they knew that Jesus thought he was on a mission from God. Maybe they had heard Jesus talk about how he was the Messiah sent from God. And I think that maybe, maybe, his family was thinking, well, you know, that's just Jesus. You know, we, we put up with it because we're family. We love him, right? We, we love the guy. We love him. And we put up with it because he's family. He's been saying this for some time now, but we, we put up with it because he's family. He thinks he's on a mission from God, and you know Mary seems to be you know, helping him out with this. But it, it's just—it's that's just Jesus. That's hey, that's just how Jesus is. And I think that maybe the family could have been thinking, you know, so long as it, so long as he's the only one who believes this, so long as we're the only ones as a family who hears about this stuff, you know, no harm, no foul, no big deal, right? It it stays in the family. We can handle it. No biggie. But now. Jesus somehow was able to convince 12 grown men with their families, in some cases, most of them with their occupations already. He was able to convince 12 grown men to follow him, to be his disciples. (laughs) That's interesting, right? It was one thing when it was just Jesus who believed it and the family who knew about it, but I think now... Okay, this is getting a little bit uh, crazy. Now, now there are twelve men. How in the world did he convince them of what he convinced them, and 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 for them to leave everything to follow him? Okay, wait a minute. This is starting to get out of hand. And then you add to that what we read in verses twenty and twenty-one that when Jesus entered a house, more than likely he's in the city of Capernaum. He enters the house, and this crowd gathers around him. Enough so that he couldn't eat, and neither could his disciples. Then, the, then his family members maybe they're thinking at this point, okay, now, now, oh boy, he was able to convince some men to follow him to be his disciples, and now the crowds are gathering around him. This, this, this is getting this is getting out of hand. This is, oh boy, it was one thing when only Jesus believed it. It was one thing when only the family knew about it. But now, now, oh boy. He convinced 12 men to follow him, and crowds are gathering around him. This is not good. Now, I don't, I don't think—I mean, again, who, who knows exactly what the family was thinking, but I think part of their, their reaction or what prompted this response to them is that they, they knew what was going on around them, okay? You, so you know right now, you know the, the political and social situation in the United States right now. You, you know what's going on around you. 
Well, Jesus' family would have been aware of the political and social situation going on in their time. And so I think they would have thought, boy, if, if Jesus starts making all these claims about being the Messiah, that doesn't set well with the religious leaders of Jerusalem, from Jerusalem or of Israel. They don't like that stuff. They don't like it when someone, <clears throat> excuse me, they don't like it when someone starts saying they're Messiah. They don't like it when someone comes and starts bringing a different teaching than what they teach. And so if Jesus, again, if it was just him, okay, no, no worries, right? But now he's got 12 disciples. Crowds are coming around him. This is going to get to the religious leaders. They're going to find out about it. And, th- and then what? They don't like that stuff. They go after people who start saying that kind of stuff and acting that way. And not only that, but Jesus wasn't the first man to claim he was the Messiah. Oh, there were tons of people at that time who were claiming to be the Messiah. And the Romans, who were obviously in charge of, of uh, the world, essentially the world at the, in that area at that time and over Israel, they didn't like hearing about a Messiah because I think they knew enough to know that the Jewish community, the Jewish people believed that the Messiah, as their tradition and their prophecies state, the Messiah was going to bring liberation to the people of Israel. And whichever government was oppressing or was over the people of Israel, the Messiah was going to liberate them from that oppression, in this case, Rome. So if Rome got wind of this, if if whoever was in charge of that area where Jesus was in, up in Capernaum, or if some Roman governor or some uh, centurion or whoever got wind of Jesus calling 12 men and they followed him and crowds are starting to gather around him and he's claiming to be the Jewish Messiah and they kind of start putting two and two together. Oh, wait a minute. People are actually starting to follow this guy. He's not like those other kooks out there who no one's following them. They claim to be the Messiah, but no one's following him. Uh, This guy is actually, he's got a following now. He's got 12 men who are following him and crowds are gathering around him. The Romans got wind of that. They're, they're going to, I'll tell you what, they're going to squash that rebellion. So I think his family potentially, again, I can't psychoanalyze them. I don't know what they're thinking, but taking into consideration everything that's happening around them at that time, I think there's genuine concern for Jesus at this point on behalf of his family. Jesus, as long as it was you and it was just a family who knew about what you were claiming that you were and who you were and what you were here to do, okay, we're fine, but this is getting too far and you're going to get yourself in trouble. You're out of your mind. You don't know what you're doing. You don't know what kind of problems you're getting yourself into. And I think potentially more than they were upset that he couldn't eat, I think the fact that he had called disciples and that people were gathering around him is what prompted Jesus' family to say, yeah, he's out of his mind. And so the story continues, but there's, there's a brief interruption. There's a brief interruption. Because we find out the last thing we hear right now is that Jesus' family, they, they went out from wherever they were, potentially Nazareth, or I, I don't know, but they weren't exactly where Jesus was, and so they had to travel. Don't know how long, don't know how far, but they had to go to wherever Jesus was, and it says that they were going to take charge of him, almost you know, arrest him, so to speak, because he's out of his mind. Now, right after that, there's a brief interruption, and in Mark chapter 3, verses 22 through 30, we have this discussion between Jesus and the teachers of the law from Jerusalem. This is where they accused Jesus of working under the power of Beelzebub, uh, you know, that he himself was uh, working for Satan and da-da-da. So Jesus has that discussion with them and says, that's ludicrous, that's absurd. 
A house divided against itself cannot will not stand. And then he says, a family divided uh, amongst itself will not stand. I, I don't know if that's an allusion to his own family, that there was strife inside of his own family. I, I don't know, maybe. And he's saying, look, my family is, is not in agreement. They, they don't stand with me in what I'm saying I'm about. And so it may be that he's foreshadowing the conversation he's going to have in just a, in just a few verses. Now, look, we see this interruption. And I, I'm, I'm saying interruptions in quotes, you know, putting some air quotes up and saying it's an interruption. Because this is actually a literary technique, a literary device that Mark, and not just Mark, but the other uh, gospel writers use to make a point or to create suspense. In this case, maybe both. By creating suspense, I mean you're reading about Jesus and uh, uh, his family saying he's out of his mind, they're going to go get him, and then boom, you, you don't know what happens next. You're, you're into a, a teaching, you know, a discussion between Jesus and the teachers of the law, so you're kind of left hanging, oh, what happened with the family, okay? So it creates that sense of suspense. But I think more than that, it's also meant to emphasize a point using another uh, event in the life and the ministry of Jesus, so that in this case, you have the religious leaders from Jerusalem who are also opposed to Jesus. And so in this entire uh, passage from chapter, uh, from verse, uh, where do we start, 20? all the way to 35, you have opposition against Jesus and his mission from his family and from the religious leaders. So I mean, there, there's opposition. And I think, I think partly if this was written for disciples, you know, the Gospel of Mark wasn't just written to give us a historical account of Jesus, but it, it was written as, a, as something of a manual for us to learn more about Jesus so that we could be, for, be like him and live like him. Then I think maybe Mark may be saying, look, if Jesus, if Jesus had to encounter and confront opposition from his own family and from the authorities of the day, what should you expect as his disciples? More of the same, if not more. <laughs> more of the same, if not more. more. More of the same. To be treated like him, if not worse. So that, that may be there as well. So even though this may seem like an interruption in the flow of the narrative, in the flow of the story, it's not really. It's, it's there to potentially create some suspense, a little bit of a literary technique, literary device, but also to emphasize the opposition against Jesus. And like I said, this isn't unique to Mark, and this isn't the only time this happens. Just think about, for example, when, um, and I don't remember the passage off the top of my head, but uh, the story of Jairus's daughter, when Jesus enters the city, I believe, again, it's Capernaum, and Jairus, one of the leaders of the synagogue, he goes up to Jesus and he says, hey, man, my daughter, she's really sick. Can you come and help me out? And Jesus says, yeah, sure, let's go. And they start going to uh, Jairus's house, and then there's an interruption. And you have that story of the woman with the issue of blood. She reached out her hand, and she touched Jesus' hem of his garment. She's healed. Jesus stops. Who touched me? And there's that whole interaction. Meanwhile, poor Jairus is like, eh, let's go, my daughter, my daughter. And then she dies. But then we pick up back where Jesus goes, and he resurrects her. So there's that interruption with the woman of the, of, with the flow of blood. But again, both events both Jairus' daughter and the woman with the issue of blood, are meant to emphasize faith in what Jesus can do, faith in Jesus being able to do the impossible. It's similar to what's happening here in Mark, where you have a quote-unquote interruption, but it's really meant to highlight, I think, the opposition that Jesus encountered and the opposition that his disciples can expect to encounter. So then, after that discussion in Mark uh, 3, 22 through 30, between Jesus and the teachers of the law, I'm not going to get into that, 
Then we get back into the story of Jesus' family going to get him because he's out of his mind. And we pick that back up in verse 31. And uh, let, me, let me clear my throat here. Sorry about that. Let me take a quick drink of water too. Like I said, this is all live. I'm recording this and I'm not, I'm not doing a whole lot of editing. You're, you're, you're going to get it just as it comes out. Quick sip of water here, all right? Oh man, water's so good. Verse 31. Then Jesus' mother and brothers arrived. Standing outside, they sent someone in to call him. Crowd was sitting around him and they told him, your mother and your brothers are outside looking for you. Don't, no, I can't identify with Jesus here. Don't you hate that? I mean, when I was younger, <clears throat> I used to hate it when I would be at a friend's house or with friends. And uh, then my parents show up and my friends start saying, hey, they're here for you. I was like, oh, man, I, I, used to, I, I used to hate that. And they would say, hey, they're here for you. Oh, man, all right. All right. I got to go, guys. I got to go because they're here for me. It kind of feels that way, right? Like they're babying Jesus. They were there and they said, hey, go call Jesus. They, they told someone, hey, you, 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 go call Jesus. Go call Jesus. And so someone comes in. Jesus is there. He's Maybe he's teaching or I, I don't know. And they say, um, <laughs> your mom's here for you. Like your ride's here, right? Horrible. Oh man, how embarrassing. And then Jesus's response. Okay, this is interesting how Jesus responds. And this is where we get into that radical call for radical discipleship in verse 33. When they say your mother and brothers are outside looking for you, look at what Jesus replies in verse 33. He says, who are my mother and my brothers? Verse 34. Then he looked at those seated in a circle around him and said, here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. And so the question that Jesus asks is, okay, really? Who's my real family? You say that my family's out there looking for me, but who's my real family? And then in verse 34, he looks around. And I, I, think, I think when he says he looked at those seated in a circle around him, I think that's speaking specifically about the disciples. I don't think that the entire crowd that had gathered, I don't think they were all there seated around Jesus. I think this is talking specifically about the 12 disciples whom he had just called, remember, in the previous passage that we alluded to, beginning in verse 13 of chapter 3. Those. So I think, I don't think he's talking about the entire crowd. When he says, here are my mother and my brothers, I think he's talking specifically about the 12 disciples who responded to his call to follow him. And he says, these guys right here, this, this is my family. Now, we need to be careful here and, and not think that Jesus was disowning his family, that Jesus was re repudiating his family and saying, oh, you're dead to me. <laughs> I, I don't think that's what Jesus was saying. I, let me try to explain it this way with a personal experience. In... Um, you know, right now we, we pastor, my wife and I, we pastor a church in San Antonio, Texas, Spanish-speaking congregation, love it, absolutely love it. But before coming to this church where we're pastoring in San Antonio, we lived in the Dallas-Fort Worth area. And we attended a, a church where uh, it was an English-speaking congregation, and, and it's because really um, that, that, that was the best option for us at that point in our lives. Uh, there weren't any Spanish-speaking churches where we were that, that we felt comfortable attending. And we loved, I'm telling you, we loved that church that we attended in Dallas, that English-speaking church. Great worship, 
fantastic biblical preaching, small groups, fantastic kids ministry. I mean, we, we, we really loved that church. But for me, at least, and I think my wife had this similar experience, we always felt as if something was missing. You know, it just always kind of felt like something was missing. And uh, <clears throat> I think what it was is that we grew up, both of us, we grew up in Spanish-speaking churches. I mean, all our lives, all our lives, we had always been in Spanish-speaking churches. So the worship, uh, you know, the, the songs, the preachings, the teachings, everything was in Spanish, everything. And so that just, that's just who we were. I mean, that's just who we were. And so it was different for us being in an all-English context. It was just different for us. We loved it. I'm telling you, it was a great church, but it just, you know, just kind of felt a little strange for us. Well, fast forward a couple of years where we come to pastor at the church where we are now, a Spanish-speaking congregation, and I can, I can remember that when we had that very first service, September 12, 2010, had that very first service in our Spanish congregation, and that the worship starts in Spanish. And it was like, oh man, this is, yeah. And you kind of look around and everyone's worshiping in Spanish. And then after service and before service, everyone's speaking Spanish. And, you know, it just that, that cultural warmth that we felt. And, and I just kind of looked around and I say, yeah, these are my people, you know, these are my people. And in Spanish, we would say, esta es mi gente. These are my people, you know, yeah, this is my family. I mean, this, this is raza. This is my people. Now, by saying that or feeling that way, I I wasn't I wasn't criticizing or speaking badly or 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 repudiating the English speaking congregation where we had come from. No, not at all. I loved it, but it, it just didn't feel like home. It didn't feel like family to me. I loved it. We grew there. We were ministered to there. We were taken care of there. But uh, you know, just something. And when we got into you know back into our element, back into what we felt was our environment, it was like yeah. Whew, these are my people, man. You know, this, this is home. This is my family. I think maybe Jesus was, was expressing a similar sentiment when he said, this, this is my family. This is my mother and brothers. This, this is my brother, sister, and mother. It wasn't disowning his family or criticizing them or repudiating them and saying, you're dead to me. He was saying, oh man, when I'm around these people who have left everything to follow the will of God, these are my people. Like, this is my family. I, I, I'm not disowning. I don't hate my family, but they're, they're just not, they're not following the will of God to the extent that these guys are, that they left everything to follow me because they know, they recognize that I'm following God's will. These are my people. So you, you want to know who my family is? I'm with my family. I'm with the people who I say I identify with them and they identify with me because our biggest goal, our biggest desire in this life is to do the will of the Father. And when you read different portions of the gospel, both when Jesus was praying to the Father by himself and then also publicly, you'll discover that one of the primary things that Jesus wanted was to do the will of the Father. I mean, it, he, he wanted to do the will of the Father, and he understood, he recognized that his time on earth was in order to do the will of the Father. And so when Jesus sees these men, these 12 disciples, who had left everything to follow him, he says, this is my family. Like, this is my people. These, these guys right here, this is my family. I'm not disowning my family. I'm just saying, these people. I mean, I feel a kindred, we're kindred spirits. I, I feel a, 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 a spirit-to-spirit connection with these guys because they've left everything 
to follow me. And that's why this, this statement in verse 35 is so incredible. Whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. Whoever is more concerned about doing God's will than anything else on this earth, that's my family. These are my people. And, and so notice how Jesus is issuing just this radical call to radical discipleship, that the will of God, fulfilling the will of God, is more important than anything else you can possibly imagine on this earth. When, when you reach that level of commitment to Jesus, his mission, the will of the Father, then Jesus, I think Jesus says of us, these are my people. This is, this is my family. Like These are the people that, that, yeah, I have a connection with them because like me, all they want to do is the will of the Father. And again, you know, some people have misused, I think they've misused this verse to say, I'm going to abandon my family because I have to do God's will. I don't think that's what Jesus was saying. I think he is saying the will of God should be above everything that you do. Now, it doesn't mean you abandon your commitments. No, you bring your family along as you do the will of God. You don't leave them. You don't abandon them. No, that's not the, that's not the point of this. It's you understand and you pursue God's will. When you do so, Jesus says, these are my people. This is my family right here. And notice again that I think what this passage is highlighting is that opposition that's going to come that came to Jesus, first of all, but the opposition that Jesus' disciples could expect to experience, and Jesus is saying, but look, if you just pursue the will of the Father above all things, follow me and pursue the will of the Father above all things, we're family, and family takes care of family. And in fact, didn't Jesus say in um, Matthew 28, I think it's verse 20, the Great Commission, and behold, I'm with you till the end of the days, till the end of the earth, till the end of the world. And so why? Because if you decide to pursue the will of the Father, be a disciple of Jesus and pursue the will of the Father, he's with you. He's got your back. You're, you're, you're his. You're his family, and he's going to take care of you. But it does require a radical commitment. This is a radical call to radical discipleship, and it requires a radical commitment to say, God's will above everything else. God's will above everything else. In fact, if I were, in fact, I, I did, but if I were to preach this, and I did preach this a couple of weeks ago in my church, I preached from this passage, but if I were to, to, to present to you a sort of a big idea or a main idea from this passage, from this teaching, I would, I would word it this. I'm going to present to you two, two options, two ways that I would word this in a sermon, if I were preaching this in a sermon. And I'll, I'll pitch this out to you just for you to kind of chew on it a little bit. As you're listening through the episode after this, just kind of chew on this. In fact, if you can, why don't you make a note of this in your phone so, so you can come back to it later? I, I would recommend that you read this passage on your own slowly, just take some notes. But as you do, you know, Keep, keep this in mind that I'm going to tell you, jot it down somewhere, whether in your phone or on a, a little piece of paper somewhere. But here, here's what I think how we can condense or summarize, synthesize the teaching of this passage. Here's what I would say. Jesus seeks people who are committed to God's will above every other commitment. I, th I think that's a good way to put it, that you're committed to God's will, the will of the Father, above any other commitment that could exist. Your commitment is to the will of the Father. Those are the people that Jesus seeks. 
Those are the people that Jesus says, this is my family. These are my people. Those who are committed to God's will above every other commitment. Another way that I would, I would put this, this is a bit more succinct and, and it maybe, maybe, maybe calls for a little bit more perhaps, but I don't know, jot them both down and see what you think. The first one again is Jesus seeks people who are committed to God's will above every other commitment. The second thing I would say, or another way of wording this would be this, Jesus seeks people as committed to his mission as he was. Just think about that. Jesus seeks people who are as committed to his mission as he was. Let that sink in for a little bit, because that that is a radical call to radical discipleship. Just think about how committed Jesus was to his mission. Well, he died for his mission. To accomplish his mission, he died. And he died to save the world to to you know as a, a sacrificial death for forgiveness of the sins of the world. Now you and I can't do that. Well, we can die for Jesus, but we can't die to forgive the the worlds of their sins. We we can't do that. But what we can do is turn over our lives and say, my life is about nothing else but advancing the mission that Jesus started. My life is committed to the mission of Jesus. And Jesus' role in his mission was to give his life for the world as a ransom for many. My role in the mission of Jesus is to advance that mission, is to pick up where he left off. My role is to be a disciple. My role is to disciple others. My role is to tell others about Jesus. My role is to share the message of Jesus with others. That's my role. And I'm going to be as committed to my role in the mission as Jesus was to his role in, in the mission of the Father the purpose and the plan of the Father. Jesus seeks people who are as committed to his mission as he was. Again, that is a radical call to radical discipleship. That is a, I'm giving up everything to follow Jesus. And my life revolves around the mission of Jesus and doing what Jesus wants me to do to advance his mission on this earth. Yeah, that's a radical call to radical discipleship. But when we do that, again, Jesus says of us, I think, this is my people. These are my people. This is my family. And he takes care of those who are his. Now, let me ask you a question. You can shoot me an email. You can, I don't know, write a comment or wherever you're listening to the podcast or on the YouTube channel. But the question I'd like to ask you, and just ponder on this as you're thinking about this episode, as you go back and you read this passage, hopefully, and you think about these um, phrases, summarizing phrases that I've given you, Think about this question. What can you do today to show you're committed to advancing the mission Jesus started? I mean, today, right now, today, what can you do to show that you're committed to advancing the mission Jesus started? Whatever your role is in the mission of Jesus, what can you do today to advance the mission of Jesus? Think about that. Pray on that. Ask the Holy Spirit to lead you and to guide you to to discover, well, what what is my role? Maybe maybe that's the first thing right there. What is my role? Discover that. Ask the Holy Spirit to help you discover that. And then begin to ask, okay, now what do I need to do to make sure that I'm fulfilling my role in advancing the mission that Jesus started? Radical call to radical discipleship. But hey, I'll say it again. The Christian Bro Code podcast YouTube channel is all about helping you grow as a disciple of Jesus 
so you can live, love, and lead to honor God, but also so that you can fulfill your role in advancing the mission that Jesus started. Radical call for radical discipleship. And so I, I, I pray for you right now, and I say, Lord, all of us, help us all to respond in that radical fashion to this radical call to discipleship, and that we would recognize that you are looking for disciples who are committed to the will of the Father. You're looking for disciples who are just as committed to your mission as you were, and that we would cry out to the Holy Spirit and say, help me. I I need your help to fulfill this because on my own, I can't do it. I want to be radically sold out for Jesus and his mission. Help me do that. And uh, I, I know it's possible. I know that through him, we can definitely do it. All right, bro, that's what I've got for you today. Hope you enjoy this episode. Hope it makes you think a little bit. Hope the Holy Spirit uses this to help you grow as a disciple of Jesus so that you can continue fulfilling your role in advancing the mission that Jesus started. Again, let me uh, put this call to action out there. Subscribe to the podcast. Uh, share this. Comment. If you're on YouTube, subscribe to the channel. Leave comments, like, share, all that stuff, all that stuff, so we can get this into the hands of the Christian bros so that together we can begin this movement of radical discipleship, advancing the mission that Jesus started. All right, bro. That's all I've got for you. God bless. Keep growing as a disciple. Keep advancing the mission that Jesus started. Until next time, God bless, bro.